Someone sent me this story this week, and the story is of a man whose phone rang in church by accident during the prayer time. When the phone rang, he quickly turned it off, but too late, the pastor scolded him. The worshipers admonished him after prayers for interrupting the silence. Driving home, his wife kept on lecturing him on his carelessness for not putting his phone on silent mode as they drove back home. You could see the shame, the embarrassment, the humiliation on his face, and he never stepped foot into that church again. Still troubled that evening, he went to a bar, perhaps to drink his troubles away. He was still nervous and trembling from what happened this morning, and so he spilled his drink on the table by accident. The bartender apologized and gave him a napkin to clean himself. The janitor mopped the floor where he spilled his drink. The female manager offered him a complimentary drink. She also gave him a huge hug and a kiss while saying, Don't worry, man. Who doesn't make mistakes? He has never stopped going to that bar since. Sometimes our attitudes as believers drives men and women away from this church, and at other times, our attitudes encourage men and women to come. Our attitudes break relationships, they mend relationships. Our attitudes destroy our families, but they also deepen our family bond, depending on the attitude itself. Attitudes are very powerful when it comes to how we live this life. I preach it many a times that attitudes towards others in church is very important, highlighted by this illustration. But equally, if not more so, is our attitude as it relates to God in our worship of Him. And that's the very reason we gather today and every week, because we want to worship Him corporately, and our attitude as it relates to the worship of God is important. You see, for many... Worship is an experience, an emotional feeling that is felt during our time here at church. And if that emotive feeling is not there, then we don't feel like that we have worship. In fact, we would say perhaps and accuse the church of being a church that isn't conducive to fostering worship. But that is often not the case. It's because our attitude is not in the right place that we do not worship. We expect that certain elements must be in place before we can respond in worship, but perhaps our thinking and our paradigm is completely wrong. Perhaps instead of becoming reactive and then worshiping, we need to be proactive. There are certain things we need to proactively do in order to shape our attitudes to a point where we are ready to worship God. What are these proactive things? Let me suggest three of them as we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel. As you're turning to the book of Ezekiel, we'll be taking a look at chapters 44 to 46. As you're turning to Ezekiel chapter 44, if you remember from last week, the people to whom he was writing to was a hopeless people. They were living in exile. The temple of God was just destroyed by the Babylonians when the city of Jerusalem fell. And God told the prophet Ezekiel to encourage them and to encourage them by telling them that there would be a future temple that would be built, a grand one, a spectacular temple, and this temple would be built in the millennial reign of Christ. The details of this temple were given in chapters 40 to 43, which we looked at last week, and we saw the conditions of this new temple that allowed the glory of God to once again return. And now we come to chapters 44 to 46, which details some of the temple operations in the millennium that will be prescribed by God. As you're reading chapter 44 to 46, you may be a bit mired in the details and wonder, what is the point of God detailing what will happen with some operational matters as it relates to a future millennial temple? But from the details of the procedures and protocols, 
we're going to be able to draw out three proactive things we are to do to ensure that our attitudes are aligned with the worship of God as God intends it. Now, as we're reading chapters 44 to 46, some of you also may be wondering why God would reinstitute some of the Old Testament practices in the millennium, practices such as animal sacrifices. Weren't we told specifically in books like the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, that animal sacrifices were insufficient to atone for the sins of mankind? So why are the people living in the millennium now instructed to do these things again? You see, in the millennium, Jesus Christ will be physically sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Perhaps with familiarity, as they say, breeds contempt. With seeing Jesus over the course of a thousand years sitting, ruling physically in Jerusalem, perhaps those living on earth would forget just how truly special he is. I know it's hard to believe. You say to yourself, if only I saw Jesus every day physically, I would worship him. And there Jesus is physically sitting over the throne of David in Jerusalem. But the people will not believe him. That shows you the hardness of the human heart. There will be those in the millennium who take the worship of God himself for granted. And that's why we're told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, that at the end of the millennium, when Satan is released from his bondage in the abyss, he will be able to gather so many that numbers the sands of the sea to rebel against Jesus Christ. But it is a very short-lived rebellion. But it goes to show you that there are those who physically see Jesus, visually see Jesus, but they will still reject him. And so these temple instructions for how the people are to worship God would serve as a memorial, a sort of reminder through liturgy and practice of the decorum and the attitude that is needed when one approaches the living God. And this memorial, similar to our taking of the Lord's Supper, would serve to remind God's people about what they are to proactively do for them to properly worship the one true God. Because sometimes we forget and we often take for granted that when we worship God, God desires for us to worship Him in a certain way. It is not a free-for-all. We don't decide how we worship Him. He tells us how He wants us to worship Him. So these things in Ezekiel chapter 44 to 46 serve as a memorial, as a reminder of what the people then are to do and what we are to do today applicationally. Let's take a look. Chapter 44, beginning in verses 1 to 3. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and out the same way. God was very specific in indicating that there are protocols, there are rules as it relates to the worship of God in the millennial temple. The east door of this temple from which the glory of God returned would not be opened for anyone else who wants to enter. This door was exclusive for God. The way he entered would be special for him. And this would show that this door would never once again be opened because God will never leave this place again. He was to have an eternal fellowship with mankind as he has promised and then in verse 3, we're told about a prince, and he's going to show up in chapters 44 all the way to the end of this book. Now, who is this prince? This prince is not Jesus Christ, but this prince has special access to God. But he is an actual living person, not yet revealed, who will serve the Lord as an intermediary between the priest and the people. He serves the Lord in the temple because God gives him some special administrative responsibilities. He is not Jesus Christ, but he will serve a purpose as part of worship. 
So I just want to mention that in case you read about him in your own studies, the rest of the book. Now we come to verse 4 and 5. Look with me. Also, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well. See with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances, the rules of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. It's obvious from these verses that not everyone is entitled to have full access to the entirety of the temple complex. Why? Because verse 4 tells us the glory of the Lord is in this place. And therefore the Lord says at the end of verse 5 that He would give the conditions for who can come in and who is not allowed in. Now if you were to read verses 6 to 9, you will read those conditions. Put together, in summary, those who are not holy cannot enter the temple. You see, my friends, holiness is very important to God before one enters into worship. File that away in your brains. We'll come back to that. Now we come to verse 10 to the end of the chapter. And here in verses 10 to 31, God enumerates some of the rules that govern those who serve in the temple in the millennium. We would assume that if he brings back the practice of animal sacrifices and he restores the people of Israel by their tribe, he would have the priestly tribe of Levi who would serve in this capacity as they were called to do in the Old Testament. But surprisingly, we're told in verses 12 to 14 that the Levites were not given this special role in the future. And the reason is because they were not faithful. Throughout Israel's history, they were not faithful in leading the people to the worship of the one true God. In fact, many of the Levites led the people into idolatry. And therefore, in the future, they would not have the same privileged role. In fact, they would still serve the Lord, but only as gatekeepers. They would help the prince. They would help the worshipers. But they were no longer allowed the special privilege of coming near the holy place to help in the actual offerings. So the question in your mind is, who does this? It's a lot of work. Look at verses 15 to 16. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. The Bible tells us in the future, this special privilege of having special close access to the holy things of the temple will be given to one line of the tribe of Levi. And it is the tribe of the priestly line of Zadok. Why? Verse 15. Because they kept charge. They were faithful when the children of Israel went astray from me. Because of the priestly line of Zadok's faithfulness to God in the course of Israel's history, this tribe and this line would have the special privilege of serving the Lord closest to God. What I want you to see here is that faithfulness to the Lord God was very important to him when people came to worship. Let's put it together. God looks at the heart of the men and women who are worshiping him, and he's looking for two things. He's looking for holiness, and he's looking for faithfulness. When we come to worship him, either privately, personally, or corporately, we need to self-examine our hearts for two things. We need to see if we're holy and if we're faithful. And if we're sinful, then we need to prepare for worship by repenting of our sins and asking God to forgive us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us this morning, before we came to worship, understanding that the worship of a holy God requires holiness on our part, how many of us when you came early, or as you got into your car to come to church, how many of you prayed for God to forgive your sins? 
How many of you examined your life to see areas of sin that must be taken care of before you step foot here? How many of you, when you step foot in here, looked at your life to see areas of your life in which you were not living faithfully to God? You see, if we're not living faithfully, then to prepare for worship, we acknowledge the areas in our life where we have strayed from God. And we ask God for forgiveness, and we resolve to correct those areas where we have been unfaithful to God. How many of us this morning, when we came in, looked and examined the areas of unfaithfulness to the Lord this week and said, Lord, forgive me. I want to change these ways. You see, my friends, worship doesn't begin when you step foot into this sanctuary. Worship does not begin when the first song is sang. Worship begins 30 minutes to an hour before you and I step foot in here. It begins with the process of self-examining ourselves for holiness and faithfulness. The Lord tells the people, unless you are holy and unless you are faithful, you cannot enter the temple to worship. If we truly respect someone, the one we're going to worship, we should follow the things he set forth of what he desires for us to be when we come to worship him. Especially one who can see into our hearts. You know, we forget sometimes when we walk into church that God knows our heart's attitude the very moment we come in. He knows if we're prepared. He knows whether we've proactively self-examined our lives or we're here out of a sense of obligation. He knows the attitudes of our hearts as we worship Him, as you sing song, as you hear the Word this morning. You've seen this before on a Sunday afternoon when you head out to a mall. They've made church going a lot easier where they bring churches into the malls. And especially a lot of those masses that are held at malls the place cannot fill the number of people there. And so a lot of them, if you ever watch them, are just in the overflow areas. But I would say 50 to 60% are not even paying attention. They don't listen to the priest's homily or the message. They're just talking with their neighbors, their families. They're joking around. They're playing around. I've seen it. But then when the priest's assistant comes to give them the ordinances and the elements for communion, suddenly they become very reverent. And you've seen us before, and you and I would shake our heads. What's the point of coming? Look at their attitudes. Right after they take it, they just leave. But before you judge them, look at ourselves. In the same way, just because you're sitting here quietly doesn't mean you're prepared for worship. Just because you're sitting there, seemingly paying attention, doesn't mean you've prepared your heart for worship. I wonder sometimes what God sees in your hearts as you've come this morning. You don't think that I know that some of you are playing games on your phones? Actually, two weeks ago, some of you were doing online shopping, Singles Day putting things in your cart. You don't think I know that some of you are on Facebook? You say, Pastor, how do you know? Well, it's real easy. Your head is down the entire time I'm speaking. So if your head is down the entire time I'm speaking, there's only one of four possibilities. Either you're deeply, intently studying the Word of God, but your thumb keeps moving, and I know for sure I'm not going through the verses that fast. Secondly, you're praying, which I seriously doubt. Thirdly, you're sleeping, but with your eyes open. So that only leaves the fourth option. That means you're deeply engrossed in a game or surfing. Someone once asked me, does it bother you that you know that people are on their phones playing? I said, no, it doesn't bother me, actually, because what can I do? But I just wonder what God must think as you have come to worship him as you say you have and then he sees what you're doing it's between you and God let's put it together number one if you're taking notes worship is a pro 
active self-examination of oneself for holiness and faithfulness. Worship is a proactive self-examination, even before you step in, of our lives, our own lives, for holiness and faithfulness. That's where worship comes from. That's true worship, the way God wants it. Now let's take a look at chapter 45. In chapter 45, God gives instruction on the exact measurement of how the land is to be allocated for the Lord in this millennial temple structure. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. It shall be holy throughout its territory all around. Of this, there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, 500 by 500 rods, with 50 cubits around it for an open space. And then in verses 3 to 8, it continues with these measurements. The land allocated for the Lord is about about 8.3 miles long and about 6.6 miles wide. This rectangular piece of land will be equally divided between the temple sanctuary area, which includes housing for the priest, and the second area given to the Levites who serve. With measurements so accurate, as I mentioned last week, this has to be a literal fulfillment, not a spiritual one. But what's interesting in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 45 is that there's a pivot of emphasis. Suddenly, after he gives these measurements, verse 9... Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel. Remove violence and plundering. Execute justice and righteousness. And stop deposing my people, says the Lord God. You shall have honest scales, an honest epa, and an honest bath. God told them, When you're going to measure the land that is to be allocated to me, that which is mine, Make sure you use accurate measurements. That's what scales do. That's what an epa does. It measures dry things. A bath measures liquid things. The Bible says make sure they are accurate. Why? Because earlier in the book, if you remember, the condemnation against the leaders was that because of their greed, they used dishonest measurements. And so from verses 11 to verses 17, Ezekiel will give what should be the standard of measurement so that it is clear and unambiguous. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is that the Lord says, when you're going to give me something as an act of worship, make sure that what is given to me is fair. It is accurate. Now you say, what? What type of lesson is that? You know, we know that when we give to God, it's an act of worship. That's what we say. But remember when you give, it is now His. It is owed Him. It is due Him. That's exactly what God wanted to remind the people in chapter 45, verse 1. You shall set apart a district for the Lord. Proactively giving to the Lord as a sign of worship. And you can give money, time, resources, talents, so on and so forth. But that which is given to God must be wholeheartedly given, accurately and fairly. What do I mean by that? Well, let's elaborate on this. We rarely talk about giving in this church because this church does give. Praise God for that. And giving comes out of your outflowing of a relationship with God. But sadly, for many who give, whether it's their money, their time, their resources, their talents, when they give to God, they have a lot of strings attached to it. Lord, if I'm going to give this to you, make sure you bless me. And then we quote the book of Malachi. Lord, if I give this to you and I serve you, make sure you heal me or make sure I don't get sick. And so that's strings attached. Let me ask you this, as Christmas is now approaching. When you give a gift to someone... Can you insist that the recipient uses it? Can you? No. 
Can you insist that the recipient uses it now? How many of you, when you give the gift of soap, I don't know why you would, but let's say you give the gift of soap to someone, you call them up the next day, did you use my soap? Some of you want to, I know. But you don't, because that's his business, what he does with the bar of soap you gave them. Or what if, heaven forbid, the person that you gave the gift to gives it to someone else? We call that regifting. How would you feel? I bet you I can guess how you feel. You don't feel very happy. You're a bit angry. What if they don't use the gift that you give them as it was intended for you to use it? So you give them some gift certificates to spend it on themselves only for you to find out that they use the gift certificates you gave them to use on themselves to buy something for someone else. Do you have a right to get mad do you have the right to go to them and say if you're not going to use that gift return it of course not we'd never ask them to do that why why do we not have that right because in the very act of giving if you are giving out of your heart then once it leaves your hands it's really none of your business how that gift is used you would all agree with me those are the truths of life. But why is it if it's true for life in gift giving that it's not the same when we give to the Lord? Whether our time, our money, our talents. We give to the Lord full of strings attached. We justify our giving. Lord, if you use it, you better use it to benefit me. Or we say, Lord, I'm not going to give to the church. Well, they're rich enough. I'm not going to give to your house because they don't use it the way I intend for them to use it. And although we know that giving is between you and the Lord, why is it that when we give as an act of worship, we forget that once we give it to Him, we are not to take it back? That which is the Lord's fair share is to be measured accurately and fairly, meaning once you give it to Him, it's His. Now before I move on, let me just make a side note here, and I think we should explain this, and it's important for the church to know. You should know that whenever you give something to the Lord through the church, it's used in the most prudent of ways. We as a church operate on a budget system with at least three layers of checks and balances without any pork barrel system. At least 30 to 40 people, not the pastors, keep this church fully accountable in the areas of finances with monthly reports, full audits, and accounting. This is how a church should operate. So you can rest assured in the transparency and the fiduciary duty of a church board that is active. Then that being said, when you give to the Lord wholeheartedly with trust no longer an issue, the New Testament would call it, as you give to the Lord cheerfully, make sure that when you give it to Him, it is without strings attached. You see, in the old system with the animal sacrifices, you couldn't do that. You see, when you bring an animal to the Lord as part of an offering, you don't get any of that animal back. Now, you know, you know that the priests don't burn the entire animal. So if you want, you could technically go and Go to your attending priest and say, you know what, as you butcher this animal, can you return back to me the ribeye cut and the filet mignon? The Lord can have the strip sirloin. You could do it. The priest would look at you and say, here, take back your animal. In fact, the Bible says, no, the Lord wants the ribeye and the filet mignon. He wants the fat. And then you can keep the lean meat. But in the scriptures, it's interesting, in that old system, what was given completely to the Lord was never taken back. And even if it wasn't burnt up, it was still kept in the house of God given for the priests and the Levites to eat. What's the point here? When you give to the Lord your money, your time, your energy, your resources, your talents, that which you give to Him should be complete. Yes, given willingly, wholeheartedly, but given fairly and complete. 
Read the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. We are not obligated to give. No one twists our hands and says, you must give. But that which you give to God must be His. And if you give it to Him, you don't take back. You don't shortchange Him. For example, if you're going to give God the gift of time, and you're going to give God 15 minutes of your time every day as an act of worship, that's a wonderful gift to give God. Short of your house burning down and you having to run out of your house, you should keep those 15 minutes. But the sad reality is we give God 15 minutes of our time, and then something more important comes up, and we say, Lord, forgive me, but I'll tack on another 15 minutes the next day. You'll get 30 minutes tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes rolling around, and something important comes up, and Lord, next day, 45 minutes. And then the next day, an hour, Lord, an hour is too long. I can't give that to you. But what type of game are we playing? Where when we give a gift to God with strings attached, everything takes precedence over it, and we actually recall from God what we've given to Him. Your coming this morning is an act of worship. Your coming this morning is a gift to God. An hour and a half in worship. And some of you, another hour and a half serving in a ministry. It is a proactive gift you have given to the Lord. You've set aside Sunday morning, or for some of you, Saturday evening. But why is it when we give God this gift of our time, not even money, not even resources, not even talents, it is negotiable. It is something we can take back when we feel like it. Do you see the problem with that? And God tells his people, if you're going to worship me in the way I want you to worship me, make sure that when you give to me, it is fair. It is my portion. Because even your presence here bodily doesn't mean you have given him your full attention. There are posters that can be found all through French churches, and some of you may have seen this go around in social media. But here's a translated poster put up in most all French churches. And it says these words. By entering this church, it may be possible that you hear the call of God. However, it is highly unlikely that he will call you on your cell phone. Thank you for turning off your phone. If you want to talk to God, enter. Choose a quiet place and talk to Him. If you want to see Him, send Him a text while driving. I guess it's a problem in France as well. Unless you serve in the emergency services, unless you are on call as a doctor, I'm not sure if you need to check your phones every 10 minutes. Because if you have given this time to the worship of God, he says, measure accurately. Make sure it's fair. Make sure that what you actually give me is what you say you give me, or else you are taking back what no one forced you to give to me. Verses 18 to 25 mentions various feasts that are to be set aside in the millennium as a memorial reminder. These are the dates and times that the Bible tells us God, tells us people, these are times allocated for God. Non-negotiable. You must show up on these feast days. It's the same in your families. Christmas Eve is always, for example with my father's family. Christmas Day is always with my mother's family. Every Sunday, Sunday lunch is dedicated to my family. And you know, you cannot touch those times lest you start a family war, right? And you keep those times and appointments sacred, quote-unquote, as an act of honor to your parents and to your family. Why is it not the same way with our Lord? When we have dedicated this time, set aside, non-negotiable, as a gift to our Lord, 
Why is it that there are always some things in our life that takes precedence over that which you give to God? And that's between you and God. You see, a heart of worship is not simply an emotional experience after the service or even during the service. It is an intentional preparation for it before in the giving of your time, the giving of your mind, the giving of your money, your resources, your talent. Whatever you give to God, that is His. So let me put it together. Number two. Worship is the proactive giving to the Lord fairly and wholeheartedly. Worship is the proactive giving to the Lord both fairly and wholeheartedly. Meaning you're not under compulsion, but when you give, make sure when you give of your time, your resources, your talents, it is fair to the Lord. Do not shortchange God. Because the thing is, He knows when He's being shortchanged. We can fool ourselves, but the one we worship peers into our hearts, is omniscient. And so He knows when He's being shortchanged in His worship. That's why He sets up this system in the millennium to remind them that they are to fairly treat the worship of him. Now we come to chapter 46. Now chapter 46 is a very interesting chapter because it talks about the procedure of how the prince walks in and out of the temple. It talks about how the people are to walk in and out of the temple. It's as if almost everything is choreographed. That's why most people find chapter 46 very boring. Let me give you a sample of some of the instructions I'm talking about. Chapter 46, verse 2. The prince shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gatepost. Verse 8. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule by the gateway and go out the same way. Verse 9. But when the people of the land came before the Lord on the appointed feast day, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And whoever enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. You're thinking, my goodness, why is God wasting such real estate in the Bible to give us directions of which way to enter and exit? Imagine if you came to our church as a guest, and we gave you a guidebook to our church. These are the doors you can enter. These are the doors you cannot enter. These are the bathrooms that you can use. These are the bathrooms you cannot use. This is the door for the late people. This is the door for the early people. This is the door for the good-looking people. This is the door that have lots of problems. Now, you're probably thinking, my goodness, I don't want to come to this church. There's no freedom. It's so restrictive. And here, the Bible is going on about if you enter to the north, you've got to go to the south, and from the south to the north. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is real simple. God has planned out his worship service. He is showing in chapter 46 that when we come to worship, it must be intentional. It is an act of the will. You and I choose to worship. You may not like to walk this way. You may not want to follow what is prescribed, but you must do it because God has intentionally ordered it. You see, worship is not a byproduct or result after you feel that a song has moved you. It can move you. Worship is not only after the message has touched you and challenged you that you say, well, now I've worshipped. You worship when you are intentional about it. You and I worship as an act of the will. It means we do it even if we don't feel like it. We choose to do it. It's just like love. There may be days you don't love your spouse because they are so unlovable. There are days you are so frustrated with your teenagers that you don't feel like you love them very much. But you choose to love them as an act of the will. And that's why you forgive them. And so you do things even though you don't want to do it. 
but as an act of the will, you do it. That is the basis of worship. Worship is not an emotive feeling. Emotions are a part of it. But if we only worship when we want to worship, we will never worship. And that's why the Bible tells us, as we extrapolate the principle in chapter 46, that worship is intentional. There's an order to it. Because think about it. If we only did things that we wanted to do, we'd never do it. I can almost picture and probably accurately describe what it looks like in your household if you have school-aged children from Monday through Friday. Your children, your students, don't want to go to school. And students understand parents don't want to bring you to school. And so if you only went to school when you wanted to go to school, or if your parents wanted to drive you to school, you'd probably never go to school, and you'd probably never learn anything. Because only the weird ones say, I love school. I love school so much, I'm going to wake up by myself at 4 o'clock in the morning, shower and eat, and by 5 o'clock, I'm ready to go. I'll wait for my parents just so I can go to school early. Now, if you've got one of the kids like that, congratulations. But they're special. Because I see how parents and kids are in the morning at school. It's like they fought in a world war. They look like zombies going to school. There's not a smile on 90% of anyone's faces. And yet you and I bring our kids to school. You and I go to work. Students are forced to go to school because we have to be intentional about it. Or guess what? We never do it. And that's the problem. We have to beg people to come to worship, and it should not be. Worship is intentional, even if you are in no mood to do it. And that's why God sets up the order of things. God is a God of order, 1 Corinthians 14.33. He cares even how one enters and how one exits. That's why some people today in our generation don't like the liturgy or the order of service saying it doesn't allow for freedom and the expression of worship. But it's very interesting, in the scriptures, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, every time worship is described, every time, it's always programmed and planned. Some people have the idea that worship is to go on and on and on, free-flowing. I've, I've been to worship services that last for several hours. I was once in Mexico City. It was on hour four. We even had lunch in between. And I asked my friend, pastor friend, when is this service going to end? It's four hours and going. And he said to me, well, the service ends when the people leave and when they get tired. So I'm praying, Lord, make them tired. Make them leave. But no one wants to leave because they don't want to be the one to do what they're not supposed to do, but even though everyone wants to do it. Does that make sense? So if I were to propose, you know what? We sang four songs during our inspiration. Why don't we sing ten and glorify God? Anyone disagree? Of course not. None of you would disagree because in your mind, the right thing is to sing more songs. So, but I bet you by the 10th song, it's no longer worship. Your minds have already gotten tired. It's just an obligation. Standing up for an hour is not a sign of worship. It also is an obligation. You see, worship is to be orderly. It is to be intentional. It takes into consideration many factors. But unfortunately, the freedom and the free-flowing nature of our culture has worked its way into churches today that we have forgotten that a spirit-led worship is intentionally programmed and ordered. If you don't believe me, you refute chapter 46 of the book of Ezekiel. Spirit-led worship, the experience of a spirit-led worship comes when there is order in a service. The book of 1 Corinthians is all about that. Look at verse 13 to 15. You shall daily make a burnt offering to the Lord of the lamb, of a lamb of the first year without blemish. You shall note this, prepare it every morning. 
You shall prepare a grain offering with it every morning, a sixth of an ephah, and a third of a hin of oil to moisten the fine flour. This grain offering is a perpetual ordinance to be made regularly to the Lord. Thus you shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil as a regular burnt offering every morning. I want you to notice the word that's repeated in these three verses. Prepared, 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 prepared. If worship is to be intentional, then it must be purposed in preparation. When you're going to do something, you prepare for it. It shows that you are purposed to do it. If you are not prepared, then it shows you are not really purposed to come. That's why I know whether men and women who come to church are really prepared to worship or not. I look at if they're prepared or not. It's like if you were to have your first job interview. For sure, you would prepare and lay out the clothes you will wear for that interview the next or the previous day. You'd not only have one alarm clock set, you have multiple alarm clocks set to make sure you get up on time. You'd make sure the day before that all of your documents are in order with triplicate copies to give to the one who's interviewing you. You would prepare in your mind the anticipation of the questions that the interviewer will ask you. Because in that preparation, you are purposed to do well. It happens in school. It happens at work. We prepare before we go to school. We prepare before we go to work. So why is it when we come to worship... When we should be purposed to worship, we are not prepared. We forget this and we forget that. We forget our offerings. We forget our Bibles. We forget to make a right arrangement. We forget to make plans. But somehow when we forget the things of worship, it's no big deal. It doesn't bother us because everything is so convenient today. We are not prepared to be purposed for worship. You know, back in those days, you had to be prepared because the worship of the Lord was the bringing of a sacrifice. So you're not going to walk two days to Jerusalem and then getting to Jerusalem, you look around your family and say, we forgot the goat. We forgot the goat. Dad, you forgot to bring the goat. Son, you forgot to remind me. Where's the goat? No one brought the goat. Of course not. If you're journeying for two days to Jerusalem, you would make sure that the bleeding goat is there. Because no one would dare come to the worship of God empty-handed. When you are intentioned to worship, we must be prepared. And yet in today's generation, it's totally okay not to be prepared as long as we sit there, as long as we get there, that just means we're not purposed to worship God. And that's why we are, in some areas of our church, say things that other churches wouldn't do. We tell you, come on time. We tell our volunteers, if you're not going to come on time, if you're late, if you don't show up without a good reason, then you don't have the privilege of serving God. Because if people are going to take the serving of the Lord, which is an act of worship, so lightly, then we'll give others a chance who will take the worship of God seriously. You see, number three, putting it together. Worship is intentional, orderly, and purposed. Worship is intentional, orderly, and purposed. We don't come to the Lord empty-handed. We don't come to the worship of God empty-handed because we bring before Him, not animals, but we bring before Him our very lives. We bring before Him our heart, our mind, our soul, our attention. And we offer this to God. We say, Lord, this is Yours. This is yours for an hour. This is yours for two hours. The work of the offering of my hands are yours this time. This is exclusive for you. 
That is worship. Worship is intentional. It's purposed. It's done in order. So how do we know our worship is true worship? Before you step in, you proactively self-examine your life for holiness and faithfulness. Even before you come to the Lord in your quiet time, examine your heart. How have I been the day before? How do I choose to be today? That will center and focus you on what's important. Secondly, are you proactively giving of yourself to the Lord? In talent, in resources, in time, in money. Giving Him His fair share. Giving it to Him wholeheartedly, cheerfully. Because when you say 15 minutes every day, that's His 15 minutes. When you say an hour and a half on a Sunday, that's His hour and a half. And that doesn't include drive time. Because God knows whether we're giving it to Him fairly or not. He says, use accurate measurement. Thirdly, are we intentional and purposed in our worship? Do we bring before Him hands that are empty or hands that have our life in it? My friends, unless these things are present, then our worship is not really worship. It's just a show. It's just going to fool others. And it just fools ourselves. But it doesn't fool God because we worship the one who looks into our hearts. Maybe that's why the excitement of worship is gone for some of us because we've taken it for granted. We're looking for that next emotional hit and it hasn't come because our attitude isn't even in the right place for us to have that emotional feel. It's time to rediscover what God intends for us to worship Him by, to respond to who He is and what He's done. And when attitudes are proactively nurtured before we step in, let me tell you what, your worship experience will be special every time you worship God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is, even for me as a pastor, a good reminder because there are days that even I go through the motions of coming to church but yet Lord that is not the worship you're looking for the worship of one who is holy requires a life that doesn't go through the motions but is in a right relationship with you I pray that the men and women of this church will allow the worship of God to be the lifestyle that they live, not as a once event a week. Pray, Lord, that the word of God would touch the lives of the men and women here to challenge them in how we are to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.